Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. Good evening. I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. I'm Chrissy Raffensperger. And I'm Dave And uh, tonight we have joining us a very special guest, John Jackson Miller. Welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, so we'll talk, we'll, we'll introduce him a little bit more, find out a little bit more about him in just a second. Miles... We're a diner, and we know that it's takeout only right now because you know because of the virus, right? Um, what what's on our menu for takeout tonight? So this evening, um, well, we'll still talk about what's what's going on in our sci-fi world, but um, we're starting our journey in reviewing all the Star Trek pilots, and we're at the very first one. We're going to talk about the cage, and uh, Mr. Miller here is going to help us out. He is uniquely qualified to do so. Right. Right. <laughs> And we're going to have a conversation with Miller a little bit, uh, who is an author in his own right, author of The Enterprise War and the upcoming Star Trek novel, Die Standing, coming out in July 14th. So, that's what they tell me, yeah. That's what they tell me, <laughs> assuming that COVID-19 doesn't push it back. Is, is that pushing author dates back at all? Uh, you know, I the book is uh, going through its final round of proofreading this week, uh, so it's on my desk at the moment. Uh, it's still scheduled for July 14th, but, uh, you know, it was also going to sort of premiere, you know, at San Diego at Comic-Con, and we have no idea what's happening with San Diego Comic-Con, so we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> so who knows, right? Who knows? That's right. So, oh, very good. Well, um, John, tell me tell me a little bit here, it's, uh, and it's, it's okay I call you John, right? Or you went Mr. Oh, Miller. Yeah. Mr. Miller. No, no, no. Okay. That's, okay. That's okay. okay. Um, so John, tell us a little bit, uh, you're writing. It's, it's fun to watch authors who write in what I call both streams of fandom, both in star Wars and the star Trek, uh, universe. You have to be well versed in both those universes. And that indicates a, a youth, um, maybe misspent at times where you, spent a lot of time into them. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the Star Wars and the Star Trek franchises. Uh, both kind of uh, overlap uh, almost at the you know, at, at, at various different times. Uh, you know, I was nine years old when Star Wars came out, uh, and that was a, a huge part of, uh, you know, my uh, you know, early teen years, uh, you know, as those movies were coming out. Uh, and, and yet, at the same time, uh, you know, Star Trek. Uh, when I was a kid, the uh, the animated series was on. Uh, the regular series was on in reruns. Uh, I was actually born the night that uh, the episode "A Piece of the Action" uh, came out. The one where they all go to the planet where they learn how to play Fizzbin, uh, and they use all the props from uh, from that other Desilu production, Mission Impossible. Uh, so we we have a a, a, a uh, you know, this, this sort of thing where as Star Trek uh, kind of goes away for a while, Star Wars becomes bigger. And then when Star Wars goes away for a while, 
uh, you know, Star Trek becomes bigger because, you know, uh, Return of the Jedi goes away, uh, you, know, uh, you know, it happens in 1983. Uh, but then we're, you know, beginning to get into, uh, you know, my, my favorite of the, uh, of the early batch of movies was uh, Search for Spock. Uh, and, uh, and so that sort of gins up my Star Trek fandom. Uh, and then by the time we get next generation, I'm able to actually watch uh, that series as it's coming out, uh, it, it, you know, like people did in the sixties. And so, uh, these things have sort of, uh, you know, overlapped with me, uh, you know, I, later on, I, I work in the, uh, comics industry, uh, editing a trade magazine for the comics, uh, business. Uh, uh, working, uh, you know, I, I ran Comics Buyer's Guide. I ran Scry Magazine, the card game magazine. So I'm I'm doing all this stuff, which, uh, you know, there's there's Star Wars and Star Trek licensed stuff for all of this, obviously. Uh, and uh, and then, uh, you know, I finally, uh, you know, I, I start, uh, I start my professional work, uh, doing uh, comics for Marvel. Uh, that leads to me getting Star Wars comics for uh, from Dark Horse, um, but you know, as far as Star Trek was concerned, I did actually pitch Star Trek prose fiction before I pitched anything for Star Wars. I had a um, there was a there was a book series called. Um, uh, what what did they call it? It's uh, Starfleet Corps of Engineers. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and and I had pitched one of those, and it had been accepted uh, by Keith DeCandido, who uh, 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 Keith DeCandido, who run, who was running that line of books, uh, eBooks. Uh, it turned out that the line was canceled before my uh, story was to come up. I ended up reusing that whole idea for a Star Wars Lost Tribe of the Sith story, uh, and you know, just going from one to the other. Uh, but then later on, after uh, I had done uh, you know novel work for Star Wars, uh, I was actually uh, the uh, the uh, the fiction editor uh, who worked with me on Kenobi and uh, and New Dawn. Uh, she had worked for Simon and Schuster, so she knew. Everybody at uh, the at the Star Trek offices, uh, and uh, she actually recommended that they talk to me uh, about Star Trek. So uh, that led to me doing a, a, a you know first an ebook, then a single novel uh, called Takedown, uh, then the trilogy uh, of uh, of novels called Prey for the 50th anniversary, uh, and then finally uh, uh, you know most recently a couple of novels for Discovery, including the Enterprise War, which which ties That's awesome, though. I want to back up. So you wrote you wrote stuff for Marvel. Was that uh, the text for the comic books? Is that kind of what you were writing, or were you copy editing? Yeah, what I, were you I, doing? I scripted, uh, no, I scripted. Uh, I scripted comics. Uh, and I've, I've done over a, a hundred different comic books: uh, uh, Star Wars, Mass Effect, Halo. Uh, with at Marvel, uh, you know, what I mostly did was Iron Man. I wrote Iron Man for a year, uh, and you know that was something which has been kind of fun because they ended up using several of my characters in the movies, uh, and I got to go to the uh, I got to go to the premiere of Iron Man or not Iron Man I got to go to the premiere of Ant Man the Wasp uh, because uh, the uh, the the villain in that movie one of the two villains in that movie uh, came from our comics. Uh, I saw so, so. Uh, that. 
<laughs> so that was that was a lot of fun. And so you know, it's it's uh, it's you know, once you've worked for one of these franchises, um, you know, it's kind of like getting stamps on your passport. Uh, okay. you know, it, they, they, they realize that you could be trusted with the, uh, you know, to, with these other sandboxes, with these other, uh, uh, other franchises, uh, and that you're not going to screw up anything in the universe, uh, while you're working with it. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, Miles, Dave, uh, Chrissy, I don't want to dominate asking questions here. Any questions that you have for John that you want to ask him based on what he was talking about? Or, um, yeah. Well, first, I think it's really cool that you have a Battlestar Galactica model uh, and a Colonial Viper on your shelf. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really difficult to get everything into the, the, the ego wall back here. And if you give me, if you give me just a second... Um, yeah, here we go. This is the this is the book in question that references the cage, which is uh, which is Discovery: The Enterprise War. That's up a that's, a, that's up a level on the Trek level. Uh, yeah, it was really weird last year because I had I had a Star Wars thing out, I had a Star Trek thing out, and I had a uh, I, I wrote the 40th anniversary graphic novel for Battlestar Galactica. Oh, okay. uh, so that was kind of the geek trifecta, at least uh, for me, for me as a 10 year old. Uh, <laughs> oh, it would be, it would be. <laughs> that great novel, the enterprise war. That was, uh, I used to do most oh, of the reading the audio book anymore. Really enjoyed that. But even oh, that, the, the audio, the audio, yeah, the audio books are awesome. They really are. The, uh, the prey trilogy. Amazing. Just want to yeah. say that's probably that is my favorite trilogy book set that I've read so far. I I love bringing Cruge back into it. That, that's I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know that that writing that thing nearly killed me because I wrote all three of those novels at once. They came out monthly during the uh, the fiftieth anniversary, uh, and and yes, uh, not only not only did did, did writing that much because it was a third of Megan words, and you, you you know that's nobody ever. No plan ever survives that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you talked about the audiobooks. All, all of our audiobooks so far have been uh, have been uh, narrated by uh, Robert Petkoff, who is this great Broadway actor, uh, just done wonderful work. And uh, and you know, he had, he had said uh, that the, the the toughest voice to do uh, was Krug uh, because again it's just. He's, you know, uh, it's uh, uh, give me Genesis. I mean, it's just, it's just there that whole time. Well, I mean, it's, it. He, he was. I think he was really glad when that character exits the scene uh, in that trilogy. Spice <laughs> his throat. Oh man. But uh, but that's a uh, that's actually another fun thing. And uh, if you give me a second to grab something from the greed wall or for the ego wall again, I was like, yeah, I call sure. the greed wall the ego wall. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had an ego wall. Yeah, I, I, I have like some ego shelves. That's. Uh, oh wait, I saw. Oh wow. Oh yeah. Yeah, that is uh, that is that is Christopher oh, Lloyd. Look at that. Uh, with with the with me and the Krug books. So. Uh, oh, uh, nice. That, that is, is awesome. Fantastic. I, I told I told him I brought his character back to life, and he went, "What?" So we, yeah, we, we, yeah, his, his manager said, please give us those copies. So. There you um, go. So, so I, 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 we're a quick question. I, um, I got, 
I, I, I got a chance to see you at uh, Shore Leave this past year. Mm-hmm. We had a chance to introduce the Inter- Enterprise War. Did you get a chance to um, interact with Anson Mount um, with your book? I did. Mm-hmm. I did. I'm not going to go over and get that photograph because it's on a higher wall here. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he, he got, uh, I was able to give both him and, uh, and Ethan copies of the book and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, as I explained to him, one of the jobs of enterprise war was kind of to bridge the gap between cage and, uh, you know, discovery to sort of turn, Jeffrey Hunter into Anson Mount uh, to a degree. And, you know, in the very beginning, of course, I had not seen his performance uh, as I started writing that book. And and uh, it was not really until I was in uh, the, you know, the, the, the proofreading stages that I was seeing all of the episodes of Discovery coming out with him in it. And, uh, and I, I realized at that point uh, that I had made a horrible mistake uh, because I had, I had, you know, when when we were originally pitching this book, it went through a, a bunch of different title changes and everything, and uh, and we were trying to figure out what to put on the cover. And at that moment, uh, you know, I, I had not, you know, known that Anson Mount's Christopher Pike was going to be Anson Mount's Christopher Pike. I I just knew that yeah I had known that he was he was in Hell on Wheels but I I had no idea that the character is gonna you know go over as big as he was and so I I remember lobbying first of all I insisted that the word Enterprise be part of the title and I insisted Enterprise be the main feature on the cover of the book because my thinking was well you know more people will recognize the enterprise you know it's a it's a streaming service people don't all have the streaming service uh, all of the other discovery books before then had the actors on the cover right. uh, and so my thinking was well let's have the you know, let's have the ship on the cover and and uh, and of course as it turns out uh, you know, he turns out to be a superstar. Uh, you know, uh, the the whole cast ends up being great. They end up being on the back cover. Uh, but yeah, if you want the actual cover that's got uh, that's got Anson uh, and and and, uh, and number one on the cover, uh, that's that's the German version of the book. The Germans seem to get all the great covers uh, for, for the book. So I I don't know why. I, I think it's because they come out later. They're able to actually figure out. Oh gosh! Well, this 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 is this is a big deal. This is this is this is a, a this the, these 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 people are recognizable, and it's going to be a huge thing. <laughs> well, the, the Enterprise is a character too. <laughs> I have a real Probably. quick question. Do sure. you? Because these all these universes are very big. You have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and sometimes you end up having characters from you know this point. Would that be 40? No, more than 40 years ago in the 60s at this point. But you have characters that were in a specific place and time within a certain culture. And now, obviously, the culture is very different. How do you, like, marry the two of them? Because this was the first time I'd ever seen this episode. I grew up more watching Next Generation, those sorts of things. And I was like, what on earth is going on here? Like, this is... Well, no, this culture doesn't even make sense. No, the, the, the cage is uh, is actually it's almost early for its time in the sense that um, a lot of the a lot of the 60s were not the 60s yet. 
Um, yeah. The uh, yeah, the cage is filmed. Uh, filming started the day after Thanksgiving in 1964, uh, and so you know we're we're after JFK, uh, but we're really before sort of the you know the 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 you know the counterculture, the hippie culture, the free love culture of the 60s, um, except for Gene Roddenberry, who is very much into uh, <laughs> he's, 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 he's extremely uh, you know cutting edge in terms of in terms of uh, you know, it, it sort of in terms of attitudes and his lifestyle. Uh, and uh, there's a great book uh, by Mark Cushman, uh, uh, These are the Voyages, which which talks about the making of each of these uh, episodes uh, of all of the series. Uh, and, and it gets into what, what, what went into the cage and some of the things that they were trying to do. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that NBC was trying to do, uh, NBC at that point in the, uh, in the 1960s was uh, bottom of the barrel in the ratings. Uh, it was not doing very well. Uh, they did not have particularly daring things on TV. Um, but we were beginning to see the baby boomer, you know, youth culture. Uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, the teenagers were home on Friday nights, uh, uh, not yet going out yet. So they, so you had a lot of kids there. And, and so they were, they were starting to get TV shows like the man from uncle, uh, which was basically a, a, inspired by, uh, James Bond. Uh, and and you you started to have things that were, you know, not just another western, not just another uh, not just another cop show, uh, things that were kind of going beyond uh, the you know the realm of uh, you know what was normally on TV. Uh, the problem though was that you know they were having to sell these TV shows to these executives uh, at NBC finance the two pilot or finance, but who ordered the two pilots. Uh, and, and then of course at Desilu, uh, the people who were actually financing the pilots uh, and producing them, they had their own expectations about what the character should look like, what it should be like, what it should seem like. Uh, and so, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that uh, is very much of its time. There's a lot of stuff which was already retrograde of its time <laughs> at that time, uh, because the people that were, uh, you know, the people that were were green lighting it uh, were, you know, older dudes uh, in their fifties and sixties. Uh, and at the same time, some of it was ahead of its time as well, because uh, you know you had uh, you had. Uh, you know, you had uh, Gene Roddenberry and sort of this this vibe that's developing in culture that is that is pretty much uh, you know it's it's mercilessly made fun of in the Austin Powers movies <laughs> right. over over the next while with you know, you know with the, with people in miniskirts and things like that and uh, and it's uh, you know it's sort of the, sort of the the you know, the go go uh, aspect of things so so yeah I mean it's. It, whatever we're doing, we're having to sort of update, um, you know, the, 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 and this gets more to your question. We're, we're trying to take the, the basic ideas of the characters of what they were intended to be of who they were supposed to be. And, and we're bringing that forward and we're updating that. Uh, and, you know, we're kind of sanding some of the edges off it's sort of in the same way that, 
well, when they did the remastered version of the TV series, uh, you know, they they were able to go through and you know update a lot of the things for modern sensibilities. Right. Um, you know, some of the some some of the stuff will never age well. Some of the plots, uh, you know, are are are, are of some of the episodes. Uh, you know, you, you you're like, okay, that that's. That is so much of its time; it's just not going to work for anybody anymore. Right. Uh, but you can you can usually peel some things out of it and and uh, you know imagine it in a different way. Right. John, question for you: This is when I watched it again. There's a one scene where Pike says, "I'm not used to having women on the bridge." Um, I, took, <laughs> I took that two two ways. Now, yes, that 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 aged well, but I thought maybe that was. Roddenberry's way to try to address that issue. Well, they try, it, it, they try to be it, progressive it, at the same time. Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it you know, sort of lampshaded or put whatever, whatever the phrase is, phrase is for. He he made he made an asset out of what was possibly a drawback in the minds of the people who were going to be watching this and trying to approve it. Uh, remember what the purpose of the pilot is. The purpose of the pilot is to give NBC's executives something that they can take uh, to the advertisers, something they can take to the to the upfronts and say, uh, here's here's here is what this show is kind of about, uh, and here's why you need to give us money. because uh, this is going to be a very expensive show, and uh, and so. You know, he he's trying, or you know, they're 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 having to try to do a bunch of things at once with a pilot, uh, and and one of the one of the one of the difficulties, uh, if you read Cushman's book about the responses from the NBC guys, uh, and it was all guys, uh, it was uh, you know, it, it's it's this is this this show is too cerebral. Uh, this show is too far out of the lane of what we expect and understand. Um, yeah, women on the bridge would be an unusual thing for a bunch of guys who probably served in World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, yeah, and of course, the funny thing is everybody at Desilu, which is producing the TV series, is working for Lucille Ball. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> So we have that kind of, who is the most powerful woman in television at this point. Uh, and, and uh, so I, I think that it's, it's uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're having to sort of shoot this, uh, this gap here uh, and, and make something that is going to both be accepted by the suits in the room uh, and what they think the advertisers are going to want. And at the same time, he's got to write something which is, he knows is going to appeal to the kids that are going to be watching. And at the same time as that, uh, you know, it's, it's gotta be something they can physically put on something they can afford to do something that doesn't break the bank. Uh, and you're trying to do all of these things. And, um, it's not surprising that, uh, most pilots don't get picked up. And uh, it was not surprising that this pilot did not get picked up, uh, cause this pilot has problems. Uh, in terms of in terms of what they were probably going to go for in the 1960s. Mm. Yeah, but they liked it enough to order another pilot, you know, in the midst of it, right? 
But yeah. but Desilu didn't necessarily the the Desilu executives thought this thing was a nightmare. Uh, it was ridiculously expensive, uh, and the last thing they wanted to do was sink any more money into it. And uh, and again, this is where you know I, I did a, I did an article for um uh, for uh, Entertainment Weekly's uh you know Star Trek guide uh, that they did a, a couple of years ago uh, about Lucille Ball specifically. Um, I talk about Lucy a lot, and this is kind of this is kind of weird. Before I did anything for Marvel, I actually pitched a uh, a, a friend of mine. Uh, he was running a company called TV Comics at the time, uh, and we pitched an I Love Lucy comic series. Uh, and so the very <laughs> first scripts I ever wrote for a comic series were for I Love Lucy. Okay. Uh, and and uh, of course, among the connections between Star Trek and Lucille Ball. In addition to Lucy having had this role at the beginning with Star Trek, uh, her daughter, uh, Lucy Arnaz, uh, married Lawrence Luckinbill. Uh, and Lawrence Luckinbill is... He played the, the Klingon ambassador? No, Lawrence Luckinbill is Cybok. Oh, yeah, okay. He, he is Spock's brother. So this is already a... This is already a family affair. So, right, um, and, right, right. and we had we had an in because my friend's wife was Lucy Arnez's uh, uh, personal assistant at the time, and so uh, we put together this great pitch, this great everything. I I, I studied up on everything Lucy related, including this space phase of history. Uh, wrote what we what we still believe were some pretty good comics, and uh, and uh, in fact, Lucy Arnez uh, really liked them, according to my according to my friend. Uh, as it turned out, though. Um, we, we got the go-ahead from Lucy, but we didn't get the BS, which is bizarre, but the case is that Lucy Arnaz owns her parents and their likenesses, uh, the use of their likenesses. Um, CBS owns Lucy Ricardo and Ricky Ricardo, and you have to pay both. Uh, oh. And oh. and we could, and this was and this was right in that era where all of the manufacturer not manufacturer but all of the studios were realizing uh, or, or not not really the studios but yeah everybody was realizing they could actually mine their old properties for a lot of money and uh, and we couldn't afford it but but anyway no I wrote this I wrote so I, uh, again I, I wrote this piece for uh, for Entertainment Weekly about about Lucy she. In the beginning, according to Mark Cushman, in the beginning, she had no idea what the show was. Uh, she thought Star Trek, it was about the USO. It was about, like, Bob Hope performers going from island to island, uh, uh, entertaining people. Um, when she found out it was Star Trek, it was like, what? Okay, but, um, you know, the, the, problem that, that, the problem that Desi Lu was in, uh, and again, she had gotten the company after the divorce, uh, the problem that they were in was that they didn't have any TV shows to put on that they owned. Um, if you watch TV shows from the 60s, you will see over and over again, uh, if you watch to the end of the show, it will say filmed at Desilu Studios in California. Um, this was a huge deal. Desi Arnaz was a genius. He was the first person to say, let's take TV production and move it to California. Uh, and let's film these episodes so we can do reruns in syndication forever. Um, the problem was, even though all these TV shows, like uh, My Favorite Martian is, is shot at Desilu, and um, um, uh, 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 The Andy Griffith Show, they're shot, it was, was shot at Desilu, they only owned one series uh, in, 63, 60, uh, in 63, that was The Untouchables, uh, and it had been canceled. 
and nothing that they had put on in 64 or 65 uh, uh, went anywhere. And so what ended up happening is they uh, they said, we need new TV series, we need new blood. Uh, two different shows were, uh, were brought to them. Uh, one was Star Trek, uh, which she got behind, uh, and the other took longer, but it was another little show called Mission Impossible. And, uh, and those were both part of the, uh, you know, the packages that were, were, were pitched to, uh, uh, you know, pitched to Desi Lou at the time. She said, we're, you know, let's go ahead. Let's, 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 we've spent all this money. Let's go ahead. Let's do the second, uh, the, do the second pilot. And if you need to recast, recast. And of course, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, we're kind of into the cage right now anyway, so we might as well just continue along the uh, the cage franchise. I do want to come back to you though at the end because you have a book coming out, so maybe at the end we should talk we'll talk sure. about that and find out uh, where people could find out more about you and follow you and stalk you online and all that. Um, so tell us uh, so let's get into uh, the cage cage proper. Uh, what was really funny, John, before you came on, Chrissy was telling us that this was the first time that she had ever watched the cage and didn't know anything about it. So Chrissy, yeah. I want you to kind of recap uh, what your expectation was going in and how, how mystified you were about the way this was rolling. Well, one, I was expecting a Captain Kirk. And so like the first, what was it, like five, 10 minutes, I'm sitting there being like, who, who is this person? They're calling him Captain, but that is definitely not Captain Kirk. Wait, do I remember like William? Like, I maybe I'm only remember what like, when he's older. Like, no, that's definitely not what he looks like. I was like so baffled and confused, and I'm like, but there's Spock, and I'm like, but where are the other people? Where are they? Like, what are they doing? Like, is this like a pre? Like, what? I was just the whole time just very, very confused until they finally said Christopher Pike, and then I went. Oh, and then so many light bulbs just went off in my head because, like, I didn't really know this character. And so for me, he was more of a new character being introduced in, like, later. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This is where you come from. And, like, so, like, really revamping my whole picture of this person. But then when they started talking about some of the things like, oh, you're gonna go be a traitor and have slaves. I was like, wait, what? Like they have slaves in the Federation. You don't do that. Like what what is this? So Ryan slave girls. It was like made it was like very interesting like culture shock because obviously I was born in nineteen eighty seven, grew up with next generation Voyager, you know, very millennial. And so even though I'm like super into history, love like 50s, 60s stuff, just very like, no, I even like watch a lot of I Dream of Dreaming and Bewitched, like far more than I should admit, but you know, I absolutely adore it. I love Lucy, but 60s science fiction is its own very special, special place. <laughs> I was going to say you special know, hell, but you know, whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, and even more, like, because it's not like I hadn't seen any of the original Star Trek, but this episode being, like, even older than the rest in a very different sort of pilot episode was a very different experience. So if you have not watched The Cage as a millennial, you need to go do it right now during quarantine. You have nothing better to do unless you're an essential worker. And if you are an essential <laughs> worker, you need to blow off some steam. Trust me, as an essential worker, I know. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, you know, science fiction on TV did not have a great name at this point. Um, you know, that's something else which is in Mark Cushman's book, which is that Pike was originally written uh, for Lloyd Bridges. And Lloyd wanted nothing to do with it uh, because it just, you know, uh, you know science fiction, um, there are certainly, you know, there, there are smart writers in the 50s. Uh, you know, it, obviously Rod Serling, everything he does, uh, in the Twilight Zone in the '60s is is brilliant, uh, and on uh, on the film screens you do have uh, you know things like Forbidden Planet, which are you know somewhat more thoughtful and upscale, and uh, and certainly The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, which are drawing on real science fiction ideas and properties, and and it treats it as an adult thing, but for television also. Uh, science fiction was always a kitty thing. Um, you know, the the TV show in the 1950s uh, that uh, all the kids would come home to watch uh, was uh, Captain Video uh, and the Video Rangers and everything. Uh, you know, it was it was it was kind of considered juvenile. And obviously, yes, they're pitching the show at uh, a younger audience, uh, but but yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, it, it, Star Trek takes science fiction a lot more seriously once it gets underway uh, and once he's able to go out and and get these great writers um, and uh, you know, to work on these shows uh, and and it sort of changes where the bar is um, you know in in much the same way that uh, in film 1968 uh, is when 2001 a Space Odyssey comes out. Uh, and you know, there, and that's almost a dividing line between you know how smart the science fiction is on either side of it. Although some really, really dumb science fiction movies come out in the nineteen seventies. Uh, yeah, but, but well, it was but, the seventies. I mean, well, yeah, and and again, I, I I will simply say, you know, anybody who wants to go see one of my podcasts about Star Wars and how it separated science fiction beforehand to afterward i won't get into that here but it's <laughs> it, it's another it's another chapter in this there are these sea changes that happen uh and uh, you know star trek uh you know it gives us gives the writers in television permission to make star uh, to make science fiction smarter uh and make it less goofy not for children uh, you know, Lost in Space was the reason that this TV show was not on CBS. Um, you know, I mean, CBS was, you know, Lucy built CBS, uh, and, but they couldn't take the show there because uh, they already had a, a science fiction show. They already had it. Oh, yeah. Uh, they true. already had, Leo, they, or, you know, Irwin Allen got there first. You right. can't have more than one. I mean, that's just. Yeah, I mean, I, that's kind of how they thought. That's yeah. uh, which is which is bizarre considering that at various points earlier in the 1960s there were something like 17 hours of westerns on uh, at the same time uh, or, or oh, in the wow. TV schedule at the time. Yeah. So yeah. Well, you know, I'm a I'm a TV I'm a TV buff. If you haven't figured that out, I, <laughs> I, I, I I'm, I'm obsessed with old TV. Yeah, there right. you go. There you go. Well, it makes sense. I mean, 50s, 60s, you know, uh, kids growing up with cowboys and Indians. I mean, that was the era. And uh, so Westerns being strong in that time kind of makes sense as filling up a lot of TV at that time. I was and, amazed. So this is, you know, the, the, go ahead. 
the the phrase they used when they pitched the show, what they called it, they called it Wagon Train to the Stars. And okay. Wagon Train was a Western TV series. The right. whole idea of it was give them give the executives something they understand, they recognize. Right. Wagon Train was a TV series where you know the wagon train would go on and they would just go on forever. And every every week they would stumble into someplace else. Uh, and and it'd be a new plot, and then they'd go to the next one. Well, that is kind of Star Trek, you know, in space. So makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, all I can think of now is Firefly. Sorry, my brain is elsewhere. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, a lot of that too. Yeah, especially with Western in space, right? The uh, the, thing know, that, like- the thing that impressed me about so I, I had never watched the Cage either. That being said, I knew about the Cage. It was uh, I went into it knowing that the only person that I was going to see that I recognized was Spock going into this thing. Um, I was amazed at how, and I don't know if this, I'm sure it was intentional on their part, because, uh, but how closely like the, the chiseledness of Anson Mount matched the chiseledness of Pike in the, in the pilot. Um, and so there was a neat continuity, at least in the, in the look, at least to some degree. Uh, it felt like, and even in the coloring of the uniforms between that and bringing him on into Discovery. Um, so that stuck out to me because, again, I'd seen him more in Discovery than I had seen him in the cage at this point. Um, but yeah, so that was just a comment and thought I had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Je- Jeffrey Hunter was a, a movie star. I mean, he was he was a uh, he was he was a, a heartthrob. You know, you know, young actor, and uh, you know, I, that was kind of you know what they were looking at is let's get somebody who is uh, uh, you know you, people are going to want to have uh, you know photos of on their wall, right? Uh, and uh, you know, it, 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 as I say, it it's probably you know I. Uh, and it's hard to remember that William Shatner was sort of in that category then too. Uh, but it, it's, uh, yeah, I think again, you know, the the people that looked at the episode thought, okay, well, you know, Spock is just too uh, too alien looking. Let's let's soften his features a bit. Uh, and uh, you know, I I think that uh, you well. Know, Obviously, there's there's stuff that they did carry over between the shows, and I don't um, think but, they even ever like explicitly stated in the pilot episode that Spock was an alien. No, they don't. Yeah, <laughs> um, there's the, the, the what they what they tried to do, uh, in, and this this again comes up in Cushman's book, which I, I, I as I say I can't recommend enough. Um, you know, they don't stop to explain everything. And this is the thing which is a strength of Star Wars, uh, which is that, that when the first movie came out, they didn't stop to explain everything that they did. This is a Wookiee. He comes from the furry the furry Wookiee planet. Uh, and, and they don't explain how lightsabers work. It's just there. They don't explain how land speeders go. It's just there. Well, that was something that was actually discussed during Star Trek. Um, you know, if you're watching a Western, they don't stop in the middle of the in the middle of the episode to say uh, this is a cult, uh, uh, you know, repeating action, whatever. You know, <laughs> they, they don't they don't they don't say this is a horse. The horse uses uh, four legs and does all of this. They 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 made a point of being matter of fact about as much stuff as possible, because, again, 
you know, they they wanted people to be comfortable with it and look, you know, you know immerse themselves in that universe uh, and and not have to have everything explained to them constantly. And that allowed them to have some mystery going forward once they actually got to do a show. Well, I mean, I don't spend my day going, this is a phone. It allows yeah, me right. to call people. Like, nobody, like, no, we just live our lives, and it just is. Well, well know, it, but that was that was a hallmark of, uh, you know, of, of you know, science fiction on TV and uh, in, in movies and also in, in, in prose. I mean, the, the, pulp, the pulp magazines that science fiction, you, you know, it comes, it come, comes from, uh, you know, and of course, before that, to H.G. Wells and all of that. But uh, in those magazines, one of the things that they would do is they would do this self-conscious thing, uh, like uh, you know, it, 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 would, it would be uh, hand me the Fedotron, Sam, and, and and of course, you're talking about a spoon or something like that. They would give everything fake, you know, fake names to make it, uh, and then they would have to explain what it was. You know, back back in the old days, people had to use you know use spoons by hand. Now I actually have a Fedotron, and that takes care of it, uh, or whatever it is. And so, uh, but no, they don't ever say, "Hey, we're going to beam you down." And uh, you know, they'll they might throw in a line saying, "You know, Bones will say, yeah, I, I don't I don't like having my atoms scattered across the four winds and then brought back together again.'" But at no point are they getting into annular confinement beams and things like that, uh, and, and you know, discussing the, the the guts of how this stuff works. Yeah. Uh, that is for us, the fans, the obsessives, to worry about right. after the show is popped. Well, you know what? That actually does a service to the fans because the fans and they go at home after the episode. How do you think that works? And it, it's hours of discussion, diatribe, theory, and. Uh, books and manuals that come out way afterwards um, that, that, that the fans right. have kind of figured out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Miles. You get to the point where you're like me and you can explain warp drive before your car engine. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Miles, uh, I want to hear from you. Uh, you went back. You obviously had seen The Cage prior to this. Going back and re-watching The Cage this time, what are – what? what uh, what's something that stuck out to you that you wanted to kind of talk about here? Well, two of the two of the biggest strengths I thought Star Trek always did well was that in their stories they explored the human condition, and you had you know you had a group of characters that had a close relationship or just had a dynamic interaction. This episode, the only real. I thought really good character stuff was between uh, Captain Pike and Dr. Boyce. Um, I, I love Dr. Boyce. I'm, I'm sorry we never saw him again. I was kind of hoping we'd see him in Discovery, but uh, I love that. was that. the first scene they shot. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah the, the, them talking about you know, you know, Pike's problems. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, so hopefully we'll see. If we ever get a Captain Pike show, um, maybe we'll see. be interesting to see if we get. Well, he's in here. <laughs> yes, and I, I got to read him. I got yes, I got to see him in the book, which I was which I was happy about. What I what what I liked what they did was with Pike when he's captured by the Telosians, uh, and I thought the Telosians were very well written as far as their their abilities. I mean, that the only weapon they had at their disposal was uh, this telepathy, which made you think you saw something, heard something, felt something. Um, so when I went back, I, I watched the cage. I 
I went back and I watched uh, the Menagerie Part One and Two. That's where pretty much most Star Trek fans got introduced to Captain Pike and yeah. early on. And then I also watched um, the the Discovery episode. Uh, oh shoot, I'm drawing a blank. The the, the it is basically the sequel to the to, to the Cage. Yeah. Uh, um, but I liked watching Pike. I try to pay attention more what what they were doing with Pike and him trying to fight the Telosians and how to figure this out. But they almost get him with Vina as a Ryan slave girl. It isn't until um, uh, they they bring Number One and Yeoman Colt on a planet that he kind of gets interrupted from the you know he's kind of in a trance and you're thinking okay I think I, I I'm thinking at least the Vidians kind of. Not the Vidians, the Colossians. They, they, they finally, they, you know, they, they found his weakness. Um, and I guess just to say, you know, we we all have a human weakness. We all have, you know, impulses we we don't give into. And maybe in his own mind, he was giving into one of his darker impulses. That's what it, that's what I got out of it. Yeah, it's it's funny because I I think I. I the, that that introductory conversation between him and the doctor, um, and then later on throughout the episode, the theme is echoed of us escaping from reality and how that's much less than actually going. The things that define us are the things that cause us pain. We learn that when we stub our toe, not to do whatever it caused it caused us pain. Um, uh, but we have many times, and I think that episode when I watched it in in some aspects seems almost more relevant today when we talk about losing ourselves in the online worlds, uh, kind of escaping our own realities. Uh, you have VR now. You have uh, Chrissy, you and I, and Dave. Uh, I know we play MMOs, the massive multiplayer online games. And you lose yourself in these worlds, and there's a danger that these become an escape from and, and take away from what you could become. And this is the well. That's perhaps the the strongest message I took from this episode. I I would completely agree with that. It really struck me as, you know, there were certain things that definitely did not age well. But the overall theme, and that's what I love about Star Trek, is that often the overall theme ages so well and is relevant today as it was back in the '60s. I mean, most especially like right now, most people are hunkered down in quarantine can go nowhere the only thing they have is these online interactions and you know it could be very easy to escape completely into you know an online world and it's interesting because the whole reason that society got to that point was they basically got became trapped underground couldn't go anywhere it was really boring and so all they had was their illusions and i was like well Thankfully, this thing will end one way. Hopefully, yeah, sooner hopefully than later. When I wrote the book, um, you know, I I looked for what of Pike to actually sort of key in on as what's he most concerned about? What is what is his motivating thing? And that first conversation with Boyce, where they're talking about the disaster on Rigel Seven and how he lost a couple of people. And, uh, you know, and he didn't want to go on after losing a couple of people. And uh, and I decided that, well, you know, the 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 
the best thing to do you know, if you're writing a book is to figure out the thing that your main character is most afraid of and then do it to him a hundred times. Uh, so <laughs> as, as it happens in, in this book, he loses almost everybody uh, at, at one point or another. Uh, and in fact, you know, the prologue, I drop a mountain on him. So I, I uh, you know, he's, 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 he's buried alive. Uh, it, it, so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it, I, when they approached me to do the book, they, they told me, uh, you know, where it was going to end uh, and what moments from Discovery it was going to show. Uh, so, you know, it, it was going to take us right up to the front door of the beginning of season two. And they said I was going to be able to um, show what Pike was thinking at the very beginning of the Klingon War when he was told to stay away. Uh, and then I was told, you have the whole year and a half here uh, during this war going on, and you can fill it all. And and so I was I was, I was looking at that and saying, how can I spend this time? And I said, well, the cage kind of answers the question. Uh, we, we hit him repeatedly with the thing that he's most afraid of. Uh, because obviously, once we see Anson Mount in the TV series, he's kind of over that. Uh, he, he, he has, he's made his peace with the fact that he's out in a dangerous place and that he's going to lose people, lose people, lose people, lose people. Uh, and, and so that is, that's kind of how we decided to tie into the cage, uh, besides also using, uh, characters from the cage, uh, some we didn't use for different reasons. Uh, and then of course there, there was the, the whole matter of the ship itself and its technology, uh, and I had to rewatch the cage about a dozen times uh, in order to uh, deal with some of the things. In the cage, the Enterprise does not have phasers. It has lasers. The novel refers to that. Uh, it does not have shields in the, in the way that you think that they are shields. Uh, the novel gets into that. Um, the ship is actually much smaller than the Enterprise that you see uh, in the actual TV series, there's been a refit in between there. Uh, and of course there's been a refit, uh, you know, there, there's even a refit, you know, before we get to the disco prize or the enterprise that we see. And so another one of the things that I was happy to do is, okay, I've got to figure out how to turn what we saw in the cage into what we see, uh, spaceship wise, right. uh, in, paper. What's that? They printed out paper. There was a paper oh, printout, yeah. and, the, and I was like, what? "Oh yeah, oh yeah." Well, and, and well, and of course, of course, I, I had to deal with the fact that they didn't have holograms, and everybody else did uh, in in Discovery. So there's a bunch of things where I'm knitting together, and I do this stuff all the time. This is this is this is what the tie-in people are, are, are paid to do: is figure this stuff out. But I, I ended up making an entire character and subplot out of the guy who engineered the notion of the disco prize, the swept back you know, nacelles and everything and how the ship is the way it is. Uh, and I, I will say the, the craziest, I, 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 as I say, I'm in the middle of uh, proofreading right now and there's always conversations in the margins between me and the, and the proofreaders and the other people like uh, uh, Kirsten Beyer, who, who obviously is the, the, uh, you know, the creator of uh, co-creator of Picard, and, and she's in the she's in the Discovery Writers Room. She I worked with on both of these books. 
Uh, but also, I've got notes coming from my editors at at uh, at uh, Simon and Schuster, uh, and and also now from Dayton Ward, who also writes some of the other novels. I'm sorry uh, about that. I gotta say, I'm just kidding. I, I gotta, we, we know Dayton. No, Dayton, Dayton's great. I, I I I have to say, the notes on this book were just insane between me and Scott Pearson because we're go uh, the the proofreader because we're going back and forth over what is in the enterprise's innards in its guts at the same time uh, because there's stuff that can't be in the enterprise as seen in uh, in in uh, in the cage or for that matter the enterprise that is is seen in the TV show that must be in discovery uh, and there's just a variety of things that uh, you know, we're just going back and forth on, okay, wait, wait, wait. Um, uh, so if I do this to the ship, do the transporter still work? Uh, <laughs> and of course, everybody who reads the book knows I, I wreck the place. So <laughs> I, I, they do, yep. they're, they're not getting their, they, they do not get their, uh, they're, they're, they're not going to get their deposit back on the enterprise after this book. <laughs> uh, because, because again, that was what, that was part of my mission. I have to wreck this ship in such a way that they have to bail from it at the beginning of discovery. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, some of, some of the changes that we ended up doing were just really small. Um, you know, I was, uh, I, you know, the helmsman was going to be uh, Tyler, Jose Tyler, from the beginning. Tyler is the guy, the, the young kid you see in the uh, uh, in the show. And, uh, you know, we realized we've already got a Tyler in Discovery. Uh, okay. uh, and it's just, it, it's just going to be too confusing. And so, uh, so we've got stuff like that. We have stuff that came up that we still can't really, you know, explain. Uh, the character of, uh, of Colt looks completely different. In the Discovery series, uh, when she shows up on screen, uh, then then she does uh, in the cage. And so this we, is my uh, son, by the way. Um, and my son, just so just to tie this in a little bit, what we we're talking about, we were talking about uh, Pike kind of facing his humanity. You know, he lost these people oh, on yeah. Rigel, and we just got done. Kiefer and I just got done watching uh, Next Generation, where Picard becomes Lacutus. Uh, and then, oh, yeah. and then ends up going back home to his family plantation, and his brother and him kind of beat the crap out of each other. And you realize that what Pike's wrestling with is his humanity, is his yep. the fact that he can't save, and the fact that he did all these terrible things, even though he wasn't really responsible for it. It's not totally unlike what Pike struggles with in this episode. Yeah. Um, Dave, I want to give so, you a chance. Uh, so, I want to give you a chance. You haven't talked yet. What, what were your thoughts about going back to the cage? I mean, we've been having a fantastic conversation. I want to give you a chance to talk and uh, before we uh, get near the end of the show here. No, you guys covered quite the gamut. It, it, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it's very special to me. I never watched it until far later. I think when I ended up buying... Uh, the first season of the original series on DVD and actually was on there years and years ago at this point. Um, it's very special because it, it, it's the first. It, it is the it is what came before everything else. And to see what they did with it, it's still funny seeing Spock smile and, and the women! You know, it, it, it's, it, it's humorous to me with it. But 
it, it is so different. But it, it, to see certain traits of the characters in that pilot that actually make their way into what we know and what 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 went forward from there. You know, the the doctor who doubles as a bartender. You know, there's a lot of McCoy. There's a lot of voice that in, that came into McCoy. Um, Pike and, and his love for beautiful women that certainly has, has translated right into Kirk down the line. And watching the evolution of the Spock character for, from the pilot into what it, it's it, there's a lot there, and you really wish you could have seen more of Christopher Pike. It was a great. It was probably the best thing in my mind that's come out of Discovery. Um, seeing the tie-in novels like Gears of Enterprise War, which again was, was a great, a great, uh, great novel. But what, to get to see that character flushed out it, it is really it is something that's really special in the, in the Trek world today. Well, it's kind of astonishing that this character, well, that this pilot had any kind of a life at all. Um, once the TV series actually was out. I think if it hadn't been for the menagerie, where they're basically trying to save some money uh, by recouping <laughs> recouping the expense that they put into the pilot by putting it into this two-episode uh, you know, thing with a framing sequence around it, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's that... Uh, yeah, they were able to actually, you know, bring it back into the universe uh, in the way they did, and in a way that, you know, you, you don't you don't often see. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, everybody, well, not everybody, people remember Babylon Five, but how many people remember the pilot, uh, the the movie that was like two years before in the beginning? Um, you know, it, it's not usually part of you know, what people, you know, watch of the whole thing. And again, some pilots just are, are you know, completely divorced from the show whatsoever. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, I was, I was remarking that by the time I turned this novel in, I think the second episode of Discovery's second season had just aired. And I said to my editor, well, you know, the ironic thing here is that Anson Mount has now been Christopher Pike longer than any other actor has as of the second you know episode of right. <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. cuz i mean we've got we've got we've got pike in uh in you know the in sort of the you know jj trek uh but he's got you know maybe 16 minutes uh throughout that whole thing uh, so, uh, but the, I guess it is two movies, but still anyway. Uh, yeah. I, and so, uh, yeah, I was glad that we were able to, you know, do a book that, um, you know, filled such a big gap, uh, and, uh, and that we were able to draw upon, uh, you get not just what they did in the cage, but, uh, there are references to, to the, to the Pike crew that we saw in the marvel comics early voyages that was the that was the pike comic book that came out in the 90s uh it ran for about 17 issues uh the 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 the, the nurse uh that's in our that's our book uh, uh gabrielle uh she's from that comic series uh there are other characters that are are you know that i i pulled from other different 
Pike novels and Pike stories that had been out there. Um, trying to figure out who the actual engineer was on Pike's Enterprise. Uh, that, was a, that was like a three-day job. Uh, and, and again, I ended up making a point out of it. I mean, this is, this is you know, they before Scotty comes along, they can't do anything. Uh, they can't keep anybody. So, um, <laughs> very nice. We would be remiss a that this, this is the first time I know, and John, you can correct correct me. This is the first time we see a female first officer. Uh, this, uh, 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 on on what on a spaceship? Uh, I don't know. I, I, if we're uh, in, in TV and and well. It, the problem with the problem with that is there's so many TV shows and movies, uh, mm-hmm. and it might not have been it might not necessarily have been a, a great uh, portrayal, uh, whatever whatever it was in the past. I'm trying to think about it. I'm not sure. Uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're 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 probably right, uh, but you know I'm I, I'm happy to go back and think of uh, you know all the all the you know sort of the pulpy uh, movies of the 1950s. Uh, you know, if, if if they would have gone that direction or not, I don't know. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, another thing I liked about the cage, you, you kind of get. There's a first time. I don't know, see see where things are to scale. Like when they when they take the camera angle up to the top of the bridge and then they go inside the bridge. I mean, oh, yeah. for for its time, it was. I thought it was it was very cutting edge to to do something yeah. like that. And as before. CGI or anything like that. Um, I thought that was one of the coolest things I thought I, when I when I first I saw that. I agree with that. Going in the yeah. bridge like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, and so uh, and and again, the question is always which parts of this were in the original and which parts of this were in the remastered version. And so I'm always having to go. Was that there originally or was that not? But oh yeah, I mean it's and of course. Yeah, the decisions they made right there at the beginning. Uh, you know, the ship is not going to land. Uh, we're going to have transporters because we can't afford to keep doing shuttles all the time. Mm-hmm. Brilliant idea. It's absolutely, uh, it's story gold. Right. It allows any writer to forget. It allows any writer to go immediately to the action. Right. And, uh, and that's, uh, yeah. And that was, uh, I will say, uh, you know, it, one of the advantages to working Star Trek versus Star Wars or Battlestar Galactica or something else is, Getting the people in and out of the ship, the big ship, and getting them onto the planet or not—it's uh, always, it's always, uh, you know, something. It's one more chore to do, uh, and a lot of the times with the Star Wars vehicles, you're going, "How does this thing even land? Uh, can it?" <laughs> I don't know. Why do they have them on like giant stilts, like walking around? Like that doesn't seem even remotely. <laughs> And then cool. they get like crushed by logs. Like I, what? The lasers, pew pew, does not work. But logs, oh, yeah. no, giant it's, logs. That's that. That takes us into a whole other realm of discussions. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm Hold just on. saying that. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's a, we'll have to have like, we'll have to have John John on another time to talk about that, Chrissy. <laughs> it's the first law of maintenance work. If it doesn't work, hit it with a hammer. Blunt right. force kinetic energy, you got. It. <laughs> <laughs> there you well, go. There comes from uh, yeah, Dave, have, or maintenance man. 
right. I, I, I do say that I really appreciate someone who has such an eye for detail to be able to marry everything. Although, do you ever get like those, what can I call them? Like, those little be like, actually, you missed this little detail. Like, you know, do well, you ever have that? Well, you know, this is this is something where I've done this enough years that, um, you know, when I first started working in, in the universe, I thought I was a fan in various universes. I, I thought I was a fan. And then, of course, I, I had my encounters with the people who knew everything. Right. Uh, and and then I and then I, I had to start doing more diligence, doing more homework. Uh, but, you know, you talked about that Prey trilogy, the, the Klingon trilogy I did uh, I did a, a few years ago, uh, I went and uh, located a, uh, a Klingon teacher uh, from Sweden to work with, to develop the new words uh, and that we came up with uh, to make sure that they passed muster with the, 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 you know, the 1% of the audience that spoke Klingon and understood that. <laughs> right. and, and I'm like, you know, only 1% of the people are going to care, but we worked we worked really hard on that and and in fact he provided uh like an, an he provided an audio file uh for robert petkoff so that you know he so he so he was actually when he was doing the uh the audio readings uh and uh it's it's like you, know, you start going through the book and it, it immediately opens Revenge is a dish best served cold. Well, and I didn't say that even remotely right, but Robert Petkoff says it exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> that um, is funny. But, you know, you, you got to kind of do that because otherwise the people are going to call you on it. And I have found, and as I said, I've worked in a lot of different franchises. I have found that um, I... Yeah, it, it, people can people can t I have worked in franchises where I was not really a fan. People can tell. People can, people can know right away. You can you can you can you, you can ape it to a point. You can you can sort of fake it to a point. Uh, and in some things it's okay. I wrote Simpsons comics. I have not watched every single Simpsons episode. I don't know anybody who has. Uh, I don't I, think the writers but, really care. Uh, well, no, I mean, no, I mean, I, I, had, I had lots of ideas shot down because they'd done them before. And I'm like, well, I, how was I to know that? It's like, yeah, nobody really knows. Uh, but, but, but no, one of the things that I don't do anymore, I, I really try not to, if I can help it, take video game work anymore. Not video game work, but video game adaptations. Uh, I, I wrote Mass Effect. I wrote Halo, uh, Mass Effect comics. I wrote Halo comics and, and prose uh, I wrote I wrote comics for another video game called Smite. Uh, the problem with these things is, uh, you know, I, I, if you're not a player of the games, if you're not wallowing in it, uh, you, somebody's going to catch you. Uh, well, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I wrote I wrote the I wrote the Knights of the Old Republic comic series for Star Wars, and it was it ran for five years. I made sure to set that eight years before the games. Because I was like, you know, if I said it after the games, I'm going to have missed this conversation or that conversation that these characters had just because my guy went down a different hallway. <laughs> the, there, there's a really amusing story from actually World of Warcraft. So the writers are up there on the stage, like talking and this like super fan basically gets up and is like, you know, telling them all the things that they missed in the lore 
And they're like, well, we wrote the Lord. He's like, oh, but you you missed this thing and you were inconsistent here. So I think they ended up just hiring the guy because (laughs) the lore masters that in the game weren't able to keep well, track of all the details that this guy was. <laughs> and it's just like And the trick the trick with all of this is just balancing lore and story. I mean people, you know, it, it, you know my job is story. The lore is a bonus. The, you know, the, the right. how stories connect is not a story. Uh, and so yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it, you know, I, and at some points, yeah, you just do have to say, okay, this particular story does not fit anymore. And that doesn't kill the story, but, um, you know, the stories must go on. Right. And this is something that we've had to deal with. Obviously, you know, heck, I wrote the first story in the, in the, you know, the current iteration of Star Wars canon. Um, uh, and about, about six years ago, uh, with the novel New Dawn. And of course we're going through it a bit now as well with Picard and what has Picard done to the other novels that come afterward. And again, I think as, as we said back at the time, you know, uh, how stories fit together is not the most important thing. It's whether you enjoy the story. Right. No, absolutely. Well, uh, before we uh, wrap up, we, want, we have two things I wanted to ask you about. The first one's going to be a quick question for you. Cushman's book. Can you tell us the title of Cushman's book? And uh, is it available? Or do you have to find it used now? Uh, these are the voyages, and it is on Amazon. It's also available in ebook. He, he's done them for the original series. Uh, he's, uh, I think, he did one for the '70s era. Uh, and uh, yeah, he and I, we, we were both on the same podcast about uh, two months ago. We didn't know we were going to be on the same podcast, and I had a ball because being able to riff with him about about this stuff. Uh, because he's 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 talked to the the actual people involved with uh, this stuff, and you know me, I'm for me, I'm I'm a television fan, but not somebody who's you know that that deep into it. Where you know I've I've had the conversations with everybody back then, so I'm, uh, that that was thrilling to do. Definitely uh, worth checking out. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we go, tell us a little bit about this book that you have up and coming here in July that that. The people of the Sci-Fi Diner podcast that fans can look forward to as we uh, are coming out of quarantine here, hopefully. Yeah, I uh, after I wrote the uh, the Prey trilogy, which, as I said, was the, it took a lot out of me. I I had thought I had said everything I had to say about Star Trek, and then Discovery came out, and I I didn't I didn't actually watch it for a while because uh, I didn't have time, uh, and, and once I finally did. We got to the the uh, the mirror universe episodes, and suddenly I was like, okay, yeah, this is the these the four episodes that are sort of the middle the the mirror universe uh, section of, of of season one. Uh, I thought were some of the best hours of Star Trek we had had since going back to um, uh, to Deep Space Nine, uh, and I and when I was offered. Uh, the chance to do uh, Enterprise War, uh, I did it on the grounds that I was like I liked what I had seen in in that story arc, uh, and uh, and so after I, I did Enterprise War, they came back to me last year and said, um, you know, this is a little bit out of your zone, you know, with the whole you know military science fiction thing. This is this is this would be more of a spy thing. Uh, you know, we would like you to write. Um, uh, Philippa Georgiou, Emperor Georgiou's first mission for Section 31. 
uh, and uh, and you have you have this much time that takes place, and you can also flash back on the on the mirror universe. Uh, there's there's stuff you can do. There's stuff you can do with it, uh, and uh, you know this is this is basically um, yeah sort of for her. It is it bridges the gap between the end of season one of Discovery and when we see her in season two uh, on the Klingon homeworld. Uh, and um, I thought that was really f- a fun idea to play with because I could not see any way in the world why Emperor Georgiou would work for anybody. Uh, she is the she is the emperor. She is first and foremost, you know, her own person. She's got to work for her own uh, for her own advancement. And um, you know, the, the the this book, which is called "Die Standing," um, the 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 phrase "Die Standing" comes from uh, the last words of Emperor Vespasian. Uh, in the first century, uh, who said that an emperor should die standing, uh, should not simply, uh, you know, die in his bed. Uh, and and again, I wanted to do a book which it would be. It's very much an action book. Oh my gosh, is it an action book? Uh, but it also uh, is her dealing with this incredible loss. Uh, the mirror universe is all about people who are gratifying their own egos, who are enriching themselves, who are advancing themselves. They are, in a sense, the Sith. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I wrote I wrote a book called I wrote a book called Lost Tribe of the Sith for uh, for Star Wars, and it was it was tricky because it was a planet where everybody there was Sith. And how do you even manage such a society? How do you prevent it from exploding, uh, imploding, collapsing? Well, the Terran Empire is that. Um, that. That is what we get at the stage that we meet Philippa Georgiou there. And she's taken against her will into our universe I guess spoiler warning. Uh, yeah. Anybody just think Discovery says, well, she's taken against her will into our universe. And who has ever lost as much as she has lost uh, to go from being the absolute ruler of all known space to, you know, having a nice apartment on the Discovery. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, 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 how would somebody who lived with her, mindset with her world tolerate that how would she react to it what would be the first thing she would want to do uh and and more to the point what should the federation think of her what should starfleet think of her what should section 31 really be doing with her knowing that she is um a a a a a foreign body inserted into this ecosystem, mm-hmm. an invasive species almost. Um, the last thing you would want to do is give somebody from the Terran Empire, particularly the apex predator of the Terran Empire, uh, give that person 
the you know the possible keys to power. Right. Um, and so that is what this book explores with her. I surround her with an interesting uh, group of people uh, that uh, have themselves their own sort of uh, their own sort of uh, things that they're working through, and that uh, and uh, and you know whether um, whether George is the hero of the story or the villain of the story is in question, pretty much for the whole book. Right, and so. I had a ball with it um, once I knew what it was, and once I got to the once once I got to the end. When I'm starting a book, I'm always in a I was I'm always in panic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but but, uh, but yeah, I'm 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 really happy with this one, and uh, I I'm just hopeful that uh, people will get to buy it. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and uh, yeah, I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether it, it will fit the times in some way, shape or form, because right. everybody right now is, is sort of a, a stranger in a strange land, uh, a strange land being their own houses right. Uh, right. <laughs> with these weird people. I mean, right. Yeah. So I never I, met these people before. <laughs> so John, when they, uh, when they go to pick up this book, where will they be able to find this book when it goes on sale here in July? <laughs> Everywhere. If I could answer that question, I would be I would be able to you make a lot of money on the stock market. No. <laughs> I can tell you that Simon I can tell you that Simon and Schuster is releasing the book okay. uh, via 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 uh, via a trade paperback, uh, uh, ebook, and audiobook, July fourteenth. That's at the moment, right. as far as I know. So um, you know. But I was I was hoping to you know be able to debut this book either at Shoreleave or, or or San Diego. Um, you know I don't know anything about what's happening to any of the shows right, right now right. after yeah. June. Right. So uh, that being said, so if we want to keep up to date as to where you're going to be yeah. debuting the book, uh, yeah. where can people find that out? Uh, they can go to farawaypress.com where they will find uh, pre-order links uh, to uh, uh, enterprise both well. To all my books, but specifically to Die Standing. Um, on my uh, Twitter, that's JJM Faraway. Uh, my Facebook is John Jackson Miller. Uh, and uh, the other thing that I'm increasingly you know, spending more time on, because I have more time uh, to do with to deal with it, uh, I, I also have a, a website about comic book history uh, called Comicron uh, that I run as comichron.com. And I didn't get into any of that stuff because if you thought 1960s television was uh, you know, a, a left uh, a, a left field uh, uh, rabbit hole for me to go off into, uh, that's yet another one. Comic you started in another one of my, <laughs> yeah, another, another one of my things. Another black hole to delve into, but very another, good. another obsession. Yeah. yeah. Well, John, we just appreciate in such a deep way of you coming on talking about the cage and. Not only it's not so much that we dissected the cage point by point or plot by plot, that but we got a good context for where it fits into history, where we where it fits into really the Star Trek universe and how it's evolved over time. And I think all that's important. It, it gives a fresh perspective to an episode that certainly has been dissected on podcasts before. Um, and so uh, it, it's fun. And we just, uh, Miles, thank you so much for bringing John on here and uh, inviting him onto the show. And uh, 
uh, maybe sometime down the pike we'll have a pun intended there by the way uh, that, but uh, have you come back on to the show sometime to maybe talk comics or something else okay sounds good yeah so anyways that's fantastic well, Miles, um, I, you're quiet there, but I know that uh, we've had John. John's been sharing a lot. It's been great to hear from him. Uh, do you want to? Anything else you want to say before we go out of the show here? Uh, hope, hopefully, the quarantine will be lifted soon, and John, you, you get to debut your books at uh, Shore Leave and Comic Con. Um, we're planning to go to Shore Leave, so I'll make sure uh, I get say hi to you uh, and, and why we're, we're there. Yep. Well, as I say to everybody, may the force live prosper. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, <Amen. laughs> absolutely. Well, Miles, why don't you go ahead and take us out of the show? All right. Till next time, good night and good luck. Well, thank you so much for joining us here at the Sci-Fi Diner, and we'll see you in a couple weeks when uh, we'll have uh, a new menu of takeout items to take home with you.